And as you're being seated today, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 3 and 4. As we're going to read the entirety of chapter 3, or at least what we have covered thus far. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 3, but we're really going to just focus on verses 7 through 13 today. Genesis chapter 3. But we're actually going to start actually in chapter 2, and you'll see why in a moment. Chapter 2, verse 24. Listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Oh, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. We will finish the rest of the chapter next week, but for now, let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, this is a hard text. This is where it all went wrong. But I pray that you would help us to understand why it all went wrong, where it all went wrong, and most importantly, how it can all be made right. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sin is really hard to deal with honestly. It's hard when we do something wrong and to really confess to it. We've all seen the famous non-apologies when someone public does something wrong. We've all heard it. The I'm sorry that you were offended routine. You had the problem. I'm sorry you saw it that way. It's a sophisticated way of moving the blame off of oneself and onto someone else. Or you can get really sophisticated with it and say something like, mistakes were made, which implies, but not by me. Somewhere out there, mistakes were had, and they have resulted in what we see here today. There is a wonderful book that I read. It was from a non-Christian perspective, but it was that exact title, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And it explains how we all just instinctively, automatically, try to make ourselves appear less bad. And we do this in one of two ways. We either blame somebody else for it or try to hide in shame by what we've done. These are two things that, are, that we'll see these reactions play out for the very first time here in our text today as we focus on verses 7 through 13. And I think that we will see how it is that shame and blame works in our lives today, and most importantly, how we can get off this constant loop of these things. So, on the back of your prayer guide, you'll find your outline. We're just going to cover the first point today, that sin breaks relationships with shame and blame. Next week, we'll cover how sin breaks creation with death and pain. But today... How sin breaks relationships with shame and blame, and how Jesus makes it right. So, as we dive into our passage here in Genesis chapter 3, it's worth noting where we were starting from. That's why I began in chapter 2. Here, Adam and Eve started out in a world that had no shame, no feeling bad about anything. They were naked, and they didn't have any shame about it. So there was nothing to cover up. You, didn't, you couldn't do anything wrong. There was no threat in not having clothes. But now suddenly when they have sinned, suddenly their eyes are opened and now they're ashamed. They feel like they want to cover up. It's hard for us to put ourselves in that mindset, but you can imagine like if we were all suddenly ashamed of our hands. We felt like we had to put gloves on them or stick them in our pockets. That'd feel really strange. We're not used to that. We're okay with our hands being shown. But here, for Adam and Eve, now that shame encompassed their whole body. And they've never felt this before. So when we feel shame, when we've done something wrong, what's our first instinct? 
cover it up. That's what Adam and Eve do. They get some leaves and they sew them together and try to make clothes. If it wasn't so tragic, it'd be comical. It's like, oh, that's the best you can do? You've sinned against God. And now the best that we can think to do with it is just cover it up with leaves. That'll do it. God's not going to see that. But that's what we do too. Yes, our ways are a little bit more sophisticated in covering up shame. There's actually a few different ways that we can do that. One is that when we feel shame, we'll take the opposite approach. Instead of trying to hide it, we'll just be out with it and make jokes and try to bring this thing up front to hope that people will see it and will not take it all that seriously. I actually see this illustrated in that great theological work, Paw Patrol, that my son loves. He has this one character named Marshall who is always very, very clumsy and is always tripping on things and is smashing into the rest of the team. And he always manages to cover up his clumsiness with a pun or a joke. This is a great way of dealing with shame, or so we think. It's like, well, we'll just announce our flaws. Let them be out in front of everybody. And then there's nothing to hide. People see it and they'll accept it. But that doesn't really do anything with our shame. Our shame tells us that we did something wrong. And even if we can make jokes about it, it doesn't make it go away. That sin is still there. Marshall still knocked over everyone on the team. Doesn't change that. But this is what we do. Other things that we do and we feel that there are shame is we'll distract ourselves from it. We feel there's something deep down that we need to deal with, but we actually don't want to. So we cover it up from ourselves and try to distract with our phones or our TVs or our work, any number of things. We try to just make the shame less in the front of our minds, so we push it away. Now, it will always come back. The video is eventually over. You eventually recover from your drink. And there's the sin once again, the shame pounding against your heart. We can distract, we can cover ourselves up, but it never addresses the root problem. And that is that we have sinned against God. No amount of distraction makes that go away. No amount of making a joke about it makes it go away. No amount of feeling guilty about it makes it go away either. Have you met the person who's done something wrong and they just keep bringing it up? Someone, maybe you've experienced this in your family where someone has said something wrong. They made a big deal of something on Thanksgiving. And so they just keep trying to bring it up and they just feel so horrible about it. And they punish themselves. And no matter how many times you tell them, look, we've forgiven you. It's okay. They just keep bringing that up. Always too much guilt, but never enough. That's not how we deal with shame either. There's no amount of self-punishment that makes it go away because our problem is not with ourselves, it's with God. No amount of punishing oneself or forgiving oneself, for that matter, makes a difference because we have sinned against God. And this is what Adam and Eve are feeling. They cover up with leaves because they need to hide now. And then when they hear God in the garden, they realize those leaves aren't going to do anything. So they flee. 
Now, you notice where they go. I've, I don't know how many times I've read this passage, but this struck, stuck, stuck out to me today. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. They were hiding in God's blessings. The very blessings that they despised just a minute ago. They looked at all those other trees with all the other fruit, and they said, not enough. We want that one. Remember how we looked at last week? They followed all these things. Well, God must be stingy because he's insecure, because he sees me as a rival, and I can be more than I ever thought. I can command my destiny, so I'm going to take that. And then as soon as they take it, they find it for the lie that it is. Then they have to go run and hide in the very things that they didn't like just a second ago. Trying to hide from God. Which is funny. Hiding from God. For those of you who are little kids here, have you ever successfully hid from your parents when you've done something wrong? You break a vase. You just hope she doesn't notice the pile of glass sitting on the floor. Or you try to cover it up by going and cleaning your room while the thing is all broken at the bottom. Mom's going to miss the fact that you broke the lamp because your room's clean now. Lots of ways to hide. But it doesn't work. Here, God starts. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, we might think, is God asking an actual question? Does God really not know where Adam and Eve are? No, is not. And even the language itself tells us. Hebrew experts have taken a look at this, and they'll notice that it says that he said to the man, called to him and said to him, where are you? Implying God's looking at him as he's saying this. He knows exactly where the man is. But he's asking a question to make a point. Where did you go? I didn't move. I didn't change. Where are you now? He's gone. So the man responds to the question, where are you? He says, well, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. Now in all of this, As commentators point out, he's not only now admitting what he's done, because the only way he knows this is by taking of this fruit when he's naked, but commentators also point out he's trying to cover this up with reverence. It's like, well, I heard you coming, and I couldn't be seen in my state like this, you know, like you created me. He's hiding, trying to dress it in religious language. Well, I heard you coming. I was ashamed. I wasn't ready for guests. So I hid myself. So, of course, God zeroes in on exactly where does this information come from. Now, again, God's not asking questions to figure things out. As we see in multiple other places of the scriptures, God knows how many hairs are on your head, the thoughts that are in your mind. He has fearfully and wonderfully made you. He knows you way better than you do. God is not lacking information and is waiting for him to tell him. But instead, he's giving Adam the chance to confess. He's giving him a chance to come clean. 
So he asks directly, who told you that you were naked? Implying, this isn't from me. This feeling you've got was not from me. Where is this coming from? It's like, well, does then Adam say, as he probably should have, this is what I've done and I throw myself at your mercy. And he doesn't do that. The first thing he does is sidesteps the question. And we move on from shame to blame. The first instance of she started it. Kids, has that ever worked? When you got into a fight with your siblings, and then the first thing is, well, he started it. Did that ever work? Never worked for me. I don't know if it worked for you guys. If it did, pass it on. I'd like to know. But that never works. Because the point was, well, then you finished it, didn't you? Implying that you're at fault as well. And this is what he does. Now notice, he takes it a step further. He begins and says, The woman whom you gave me. Twofold blaming here. He's not only blaming his wife at the moment. Now remember, this is the person that he called bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. My wife. And now she's just the woman. The distance in the relationship already. Dehumanize her. Make her the blame. And the implication, you know, if you had given me someone better, I wouldn't be like this. If you hadn't given me this person, this temptress, I wouldn't be in this circumstance. Never mind the fact that we've paraded all of creation in front of Adam, and Adam was the one who said, this is great! He's blaming God and he's blaming his wife for his wrongdoings. Now, he does eventually, at the very end, get to the fact that, yes, he did eat it. So we eventually got there. But we went through a whole lot of shaming and blaming in order to get us to this point. Now, one commentator points out that there is going to be no possibility for reconciliation if the guilty are unwilling to confess their deeds. If Adam is never willing to admit that he's done wrong, then there's never any moment where we're going to get reconciliation, is there? You're not going to make that relationship right if you don't admit your part in making it wrong. This is what he's doing. So he blames God, blames his wife, and then the Lord God turns and talks to Eve, or says to the woman at this point. He says, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Eve is a quick study. She's heard what Adam did with the blame thing. And was like, that's a good trick. Let me try. And she blames the serpent. Now, as commentators point out, notice She doesn't blame God. She doesn't say, the serpent whom you created deceived me. She won't go that far. But she will say, well, he's the one who's deceived me. He's the one who made this a reality. So you see where this is all going here? Sin has been introduced. First thing we find is shame. And the first response, cover it up. Try to make it as though it didn't happen. Hide in God's blessings if you have to. Dress it in as much religious language as you can. But God will see right through that. 
And it will work. It'll feel like it'll work. You might even get away with it for a few years. But it'll eventually come back. It'll eventually come around. It always does. And it's remarkable the number of ways in which these things will do that. But then as we got on a little bit further, now we've been outed. The shame is there for all to see. There's no covering it up anymore. So the next thing to do is to try to minimize the damage. Say, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. I did the thing. But it was this person's fault. It was someone over here. Mistakes were made, but not by me. It was those people mostly. And blame doesn't work either. But we get really sophisticated with it. I had to deal with this a lot. Because what blame is trying to say is, I don't actually have a sin problem down here. I'm being corrupted out here. I'm a victim of society, of somebody else who's made me this way. That's not true. I've discovered that I'm crabby and impatient. And I found this out when my son was keeping us up late at night. I was getting up a lot. Did the sleep deprivation cause me to be impatient? No. It just pulled back enough layers so that I could see it. When you're sleep deprived, you find out who you really are. It's sad, but it's true. My son didn't insert impatience into my life. My son, by being born, did not insert selfishness in my heart. It was always there. I just needed to have something scrape it back enough so that I could see it. It's an unfortunate discovery. The way you can find out what is inside an orange peel is to squeeze it. You squeeze an orange, out comes orange juice. You don't get grape juice out of an orange. And in the same way, when I get squeezed, you know what I'm full of? Sin. And when I get squeezed, it comes out. We do this all the time, though. We blame stress. It's like, well, if all this wasn't happening at work, then I wouldn't have done this. It's like, well, the kids hadn't kept me up so long. Well, if my spouse would just pay more attention to me. Well, if my kids would just behave. All of these things are not true. Sin lives inside. It is not your circumstances is where sin is. Now, can it be that someone genuinely sins against you? 100%. Are they wrong for sinning against you? 100%. But they are actually not responsible for how you react. If you decide to react sinfully, that's on you. You don't get to blame them. They need to be accountable for their sin. We need to be 100% on that. And this can even be, it is 99% their sin is the bigger thing and you did your 1%. You're still accountable for your 1%. We don't get to blame other people for our sin. It all lives in here. That's hard to come away with. That's hard to admit. But that's exactly what it says. In fact, 
we turn to a passage in James. James chapter 1. I'm sure you've heard this one, but it's worth turning and to take a look at it and follow me. Show that this is really what's in the Bible here. In James chapter 1, it's right past the book of Hebrews, which we were just in for our New Testament reading. James chapter 1 starts verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you hear what that's saying there? Sin's not coming from the outside. If something is a temptation, it's because there is a desire down here for it. So we don't get to take credit when there are some sins we haven't committed. I've never stolen anything. That's just... I haven't stolen from a store. That's just never been something I've been tempted to do. Because I've never really desired anything that badly. And for me to think that I'm above stealing is naive. Because if the desire deep down was there for it, I probably would. Because I know sin is deep within me. Just because I haven't had the opportunity yet to commit it doesn't mean that I won't or that I wouldn't. We can be enticed. Adam and Eve were enticed in paradise. So can we. Don't get to blame our circumstances. Blame is not effective. It doesn't make it go away. It just admits we did the thing. So I was impatient because... Stop. You are impatient. What happens after the because doesn't matter. So, what do we do? If covering up our shame, or joking about it, covering it, distracting it, if that doesn't get rid of it, if blaming doesn't get rid of our sin, then what does? What do we do with this shame and blame? That's what we're going to take a look at right now. Here's where Jesus comes in. Because believe it or not, When you sin about something, you should feel bad about it. You should feel shame. You did something wrong. That's bad. And there actually should be some blame when you sin. It just should be on you. But if that's where the story ends, then we're just in this constant cycle. Going back and forth. How do we get off of that? What if I told you there was someone who took your shame and blame? This would be Jesus, who, by the way, never did anything wrong and was sinned against in the biggest way possible. He, of all people, would have been justified in striking back. But he didn't. He took it, even as unjust as it was, because what he was doing was taking your shame and blame. When he was on the cross, it was as a payment for our sin. This means he's taking all the blame for it. So now when we sin, 
Jesus was saying, that was me. Put it on my record. Charge it to my account. I'm going to take all the blame for this one. And if he's taking all the blame, what else does he take? He takes all the shame with it. If he's the one that's going to take all the blame for this thing, he takes all the shame with it as well. So when he dies on the cross, now it's been made right. And if God forgives you, God forgives you, well, then who is there to stand against you? If it's true what Romans 8.1 says, and it is, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, then there's nothing to feel shame or blame about. He's taken it. He died with it. Taking it all away. Then rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven where he prays for you and advocates for you even now. So what does this mean for our sin? Because you say, wait a minute, you just told me he's taken away all the shame and blame. But like two minutes ago, you said, if I sin, I should feel bad about it. How do you pull these two things together? What shame and blame should do is drive you to Jesus. When you commit a sin, you should feel bad about that. Just long enough to say, I need to go to Jesus and bring that shame and blame to him. And say, I've done this thing. I've done this wrong. Again. I need you to take this from me. And you can be free. If, you, if Christ frees you, you're free indeed. If he's forgiven you, who's there else to hold against you? This is the part where if we could grasp this, oh, our Christian life would be so much happier. Jesus didn't just take the penalty away, but now you still got to feel really bad about it. He took your shame too. Yes, you've committed these sins. Yes, you have offended God, but God has forgiven you. So we don't have to walk around with our backs hunched over under this weight of sin. It's gone. Pilgrim's Progress had conveyed this so well. In the story, Pilgrim is walking along with this giant burden on his back. I remember the illustrated copy that I had. The guy had a rock on his back that was like five times bigger than he was. He's just hunched over for the entire first few chapters of the story. And when he gets to the cross, the rock rolls off of him. And in the illustration guide that I had shows the importance of illustrations. And he was standing upright after that. He didn't, the rock roll off, but he still was hunched over. He was set free to no longer have to feel the shame of his sin anymore. That's the beauty of the gospel. And if you understand that correctly, that's not going to lead to a simplistic response to your sin. When you see how much God has done for you, you'll feel that. But then you will be brave to take on the blame to yourself. You can end the pattern of self-justifying. You can end the pattern of mistakes were made but not by me. End the pattern of I'm sorry you were offended. 
Instead, our takeaway here is that when we sin, you can look at it and see it for all of the ugliness that it is. That's why I said last week, you can say, cheer up, you're worse than you think. You can stare into that sin for all the horrid evil that it is and say, but I have been forgiven. You can be honest. That'll take you a lot farther than saying, like, well, maybe what I've done is not so bad and I can kind of get by with this. And you can just end that game. Say, no, what I did was wrong. But I've been forgiven. I'm going to live in that forgiveness. I'm not going to walk around trying to earn my way back to things. I am loved. And I can walk in joy before my Father. Not some shaky wondering, when am I going to be struck? But quiet confidence in the forgiveness that God has truly given to you. You don't have to hold on to that anymore. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to numb You can have it really taken away. Now, I know that might mean when we confess our sins that our family might not always be happy with that. God will forgive you. That doesn't mean your family will. That can be hard. But that's still resting in the fact that God has forgiven me. I'm going to live the life that he has called me to live. I'm going to pray for those that I have offended, for those that I have hurt. I'm going to serve them, not because, well, I'm going to serve them just until I can get that forgiveness. And once I have that, then I'm done. I've served my debts to them. That changes his whole mindset. You're not serving your family. You're not trying to make things right so that once you have that acceptance, now you're free. And thus don't have to serve them anymore. That's not the case. No, you're forgiven. Now serve your family. Be kind to those whom you've offended. Make it right as much as is possible with you to be at peace with all people. That's your life now. Motivated not to gain something from the other person. But living out of what you have already gained from God. That's the Christian life. That's the removal of shame and blame. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this text that we have. For while it contains really hard truths for us to embody, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do so. Help me to do so. To live as though we truly are forgiven. Live in peace. And to keep coming back to you. To get that peace when we forfeit it through our sin. Help us to regain it by coming back, confessing what we've done, and living in your forgiveness. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.